Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Dr. Kieran Moore, the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the Province of Ontario, joins us to discuss booster shots, the unvaccinated, and the province's stance on vaccinating kids. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole dropped the hammer on Senator Denise Batters as he removed her from the Tory caucus. This happened just a day after she lost a petition for a leadership review. We'll give you the latest on that. And the devastation continues to hit B.C. Heavy downpours triggering flooding and landslides across the southwestern part of the province. We'll bring you the latest and find out what is happening and why. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There are still some concerns about exactly where we are with the pandemic and uh, trying to get out of this fourth wave. And uh, a lot of questions about things like booster shots, who needs them, when should we get them, et cetera, et cetera. And to try to answer some of those, we are so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Kieran Moore. Dr. Moore, of course, is the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the province of Ontario. Uh, doctor, thank you for the time. Great to have you back on the show today. Oh, thank you so much, Bill. Uh, honored to be here. Let's uh, talk a little bit about your assessment as you see the numbers now. And I know it does vary from parts of the province to parts of the province. Uh, Dr. Uni, of course, uh, raised some concerns about a week ago uh, that uh, that the fourth wave is not gone yet and we're starting to see a few spikes. Are, are you concerned about some of the numbers you see? Oh, I, I, I'm always cautious as uh, we have to be very humble in front of uh, the Delta virus. It, it can spread very rapidly. Never underestimate it. Uh, for Ontario, relative to Canada and the rest of the world, we're doing well, but we absolutely have to remain vigilant, continue to wear our masks, continue to have good hand hygiene, distance uh, when uh, possible, uh, and get tested if you have any symptoms. That works for us in Ontario at present, and so many Ontarians have come forward to get vaccinated, which is the number one means of preventing this virus. So have to uh, thank every Ontarian that's come forward with their first and second doses, and now we have the third dose available, uh, which we certainly want to uh, promote uh, as we head into the winter. Let's talk a little bit about that, if we could, Doctor, uh, about where we should get this, uh, who should be get it. I, mean, I, I would imagine there's going to be a prioritized line here as to who should step up first. But, uh, but who are you looking at for that third dose right now? What's really important, Bill, right now is individuals that are age 70 and over, so born uh, in 1951 or earlier. Um, if it's six months from your last dose, please come forward. We know that there's some waning immunity. It's not a cliff, but we know that there is a slight decrease in immune protection uh, six months after uh, your initial um, uh, two doses. Uh, so we want those individuals 70 and over to come forward if it's six months after your last dose and get immunized. And, and there, there are appointments available across Ontario right now. Um, that is key. Those that are immune suppressed or transplant patients, um, we want them to have their third dose. And sadly, uh, our numbers show that only around 14% of those individuals have come forward for their third dose. Uh, as well as healthcare workers, that w in our first wave of immunization, we immunize them early to protect them in the workplace. We want them to get their third dose as well, as well as our First Nations Inuit Metis. Uh, individuals in our communities uh, to get immunized as well for their third dose. So those are the key uh, uh, categories that we want uh, to come forward. Um, uh, those that also had two doses of AstraZeneca, we'd mm -hmm. like them to get an mRNA uh, vaccine in follow-up uh, six months after their last dose. Um, those are the key uh, uh, individuals that we really need to be immunized now uh, with their third dose. But, uh, you know, most importantly, immune-suppressed transplant patients, those over 70, please, please, please come forward now. 
Now, when you say immune depressed, are you talking about autoimmune uh, patients as well? Yes, anyone on, uh, there's a long list of medications. Uh, If you have any question whether you're eligible, you can phone your healthcare provider, your nurse practitioner, your pharmacist. They'll let you know they have the list of medications, but anything that suppresses your immune system, um, uh, medication-wise or from a a health uh, perspective, you would be eligible for uh, this third dose, six months after your last dose. Maybe you could address something else. I'm sure you've seen some of the rumors, and, and, you know, God bless the people that are spreading these things, but, I mean, it's really muddy in the waters for people that are trying to get some answers here. Uh, the reason for the third dose is not because what we got is not effective. Uh, it's, uh, my, my understanding, doctor, is that uh, these vaccines wear off. Like, I mean, I'm getting my flu shot this week because I, I got one last year, but apparently it wears off, so I have to get another one annually, and that's basically the same process we're doing here, isn't it? Absolutely. This is normal for any vaccine. It often takes us three doses to get good, long-lasting immunity, uh, and there's great science uh, supporting this third dose. We know it boosts um, you to your initial uh, level of protection um, uh, against Delta, which is a very aggressive, formidable foe, uh, and it will uh, reignite your protection uh, back to the initial level of protection heading into the cold and dark days of winter. Uh, And we don't want to see any resurgence of this virus. We don't want to have any further impact on our healthcare system. Uh, And this third dose strategy is so important for those that are vulnerable to this virus, so those over 70, those that are immune suppressed, but also protecting our healthcare workers. We really need all of those uh, individuals to come forward. We have capacity in the system uh, right now uh, to be able to immunize you with that third dose. So um, uh, you're absolutely right. It, it's it's, it, it's a, a small decline over time in the immune protection, but we need it boosted as we head into the winter. Let's talk about hospitalizations, because that was always one of the barometers I know that you talked about uh, to say, okay, how bad is this? I mean, I think everybody is, is on side here that there are going to be some spikes here as we head into the, the cooler weather, and we've already started to see that in some regions. Uh, but is, is the key here just about hospitalizations and, and maybe more importantly ICUs and any pressure that may be put on them? Those are the most important metrics, Bill. Um, we're, we're monitoring the uh, number of patients in the intensive care unit on, on an hourly basis almost. Uh, and, and the good news is for Ontario is that we're able to continue to provide care to those that need it in the intensive care unit setting. Um, we have uh, 129 individuals today, 11 from uh, outside of our province, uh, in the intensive care unit setting. Um, uh, the majority of them are unvaccinated. The majority of them are sad sadly, requiring to be ventilated to be kept alive. Um, and sadly, there are, they are all preventable through immunization for the most part. Um, so uh, those are the metrics uh, that we're monitoring very, very closely. Um, and and uh, those who haven't, who are listening right now, had their first dose, please, it's never too late to get your first dose to get protected uh, against this uh, nasty virus. Um, uh, no one wants to see you in the hospital or in the intensive care unit setting. No one wants to have to intubate you and paralyze you and, and help you breathe to survive. Um, please come forward. If you have questions about the vaccine, ask your health care provider. Uh, it is the best means of protecting yourself, your family, your loved ones, uh, your community uh, by getting immunized now. Doctor, the, the 
children vaccines are going to be ready and for distribution soon and we're getting more and more uh, word now from from the health canada about what's going on there uh, there was an immediate rush it's about almost 11 months now since adults have been able to get vaccinated in this country and there's an immediate rush as we know that it's, it's it's tailed off considerably in the last little while unfortunately i'd like to see those numbers go back up what can we do with the children's vaccine to encourage families to say look at your kids have to get vaccinated too because there is some reticence again about that yeah, there, there, there is some hesitancy, and, and we've, we're going to have a very robust communication strategy going forward. We anticipate that the vaccine will be available to Ontarian families by the end of this month. Um, we're going to have call lines. We're uh, briefing our family physicians, our nurse practitioners, our pharmacists uh, to be able to answer any questions that individuals may have regarding the safety and effectiveness of these vaccines. Um, uh, but um, from our review to date, um, and the rollout in the United States, which is well ahead of us, um, these vaccines are proving to be very beneficial, uh, very effective uh, in the 5 to 11-year-old population. We're anticipating around 50% of parents will come initially, uh, and the next 20 to 30% um, will will come over January and February, uh, and we've prepared that uh, capacity for the healthcare system to be able to vaccinate the, the families and individuals that want it early, um, and, and we will answer any questions that are out there uh, to support the vaccination. We, uh, it's very important for children to get immunized. Um, they do have a burden of illness. There is a risk of hospitalization uh, and long-term COVID uh, symptoms, as well as this multi-inflammatory syndrome that can occur um, post-COVID. Uh, all of that's preventable through immunization, uh, and we really um, want to continue to protect our families, our schools, uh, uh, and keep them safe through immunization uh, as well. So very excited about having the opportunity to immunize uh, 5 to 11-year-olds, uh, and we have a system in play to be able to provide the vaccine uh, by the end of this month. I, I know, Doctor, that you stay in touch with the, the medical officers of health right across the province. Uh, to get updates on what's going on with different regions. Uh, we got an interesting uh, message from, from Dr. Elizabeth Richardson here in the Hamilton area, uh, the Chief Medical Officer, ab about the number. The, and the numbers have gone up a little bit in this area, as you know. And we've got some areas here with uh, very concerningly low vaccination rates. But essentially, the message from Dr. Richardson was, uh, if you don't want to see the number spike, it's really up to us. Uh, to get a vaccinated, as you mentioned. The other thing, though, is to follow the protocols. I think a lot of people have been getting a little lax about the mask wearing and the social distancing. Uh, you know, the marks are still on the floor, but a lot of people are just figuring, oh, the worst is over. Uh, that's not really the message we want to carry forward here. I think Dr. Richardson pretty much nailed it, doesn't it? It's, if we're going to follow the protocol, we can mitigate the damage. Oh, absolutely. And I have to thank the City of Hamilton uh, Public Health Services. Uh, they're brilliant. Uh, they're working hard to protect uh, the health of everyone in, in the Hamilton area. Uh, and um, we cannot let our guard down against this virus. It will come surging back if we do. And hence the reason we've kept um, masking in public spaces. Um, we're we're uh, ha having testing availability uh, every single day uh, across Ontario. Um, uh, and uh, Ontarians are, are, for the most part, being brilliant in following the protocols. If they have symptoms, they're getting tested, they're isolating, they're protecting their families, uh, their workers, uh, and, and uh, their community. Uh, the system's working for us at present in Ontario. We just have to stay the course. Uh, winter will be difficult. I've said that all along as we go mm -hmm. indoors in crowded spaces, in close spaces. Um, we, we have to be very, very careful and, and uh, continue to 
to adhere to all the best practices uh, that we've adopted over the last year uh, and a half. Uh, but it, it's so important heading into this winter to, to remain safe. We all want uh, Ontarians to enjoy the, the, the holidays uh, and to do it safely. Um, uh, and vaccination is the number one means of uh, doing that. Uh, but also, all of us have to adhere to all of the best practices um, that um, uh, we all know uh, have kept us safe. Masking, hand hygiene, um, distancing, and, and testing if you get symptoms. Um, uh, the system is there to protect us. Ontario's doing relatively well uh, in the world, uh, and we want to keep that um, best uh, practice up throughout uh, the winter. Uh, I know your time is tight, Doctor. We really do appreciate you taking a few moments for us today to bring us up to speed on that. Uh, uh, hopefully, uh, the numbers are going to continue to improve here, and uh, we'll talk again soon down the road. But thank you so much for today. Oh, pleasure, Bill, and uh, happy to come back anytime. You betcha. Thanks again, Doctor. Dr. Kieran Moore, the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the province of Ontario, uh, giving us an update. And uh, the message here is, is that we've got to, as, as Dr. Moore mentioned, uh, maintain our vigilance about this. I know that the tendency now is to say, come on, things are better. You know, we're getting to go to see football games and hockey games again. But it's always on the premise that you've got to follow those protocols. And that means wearing the mask. And uh, this is the same message, I guess, that we've been getting from day one. Don't wear the mask and not have your nose covered because that doesn't do anything for you. Uh, you know, and, and make sure you're wearing a quality mask, too. That was another story that came out earlier this week. That And the other issue, and we've talked about this with a number of people from the science table and others over the last couple of days, uh, that bears repeating. I'm uncomfortable, and I know a lot of the doctors are uncomfortable, uh, when you hear political leaders say, don't worry, uh, you know, by January, you probably won't even sh have to show proof of vaccination, and uh, pretty soon you won't have to wear masks. Uh, and I know every time we brought that up or every time I hear a politician like the premier uh, say something like that, and, I, and some doctors just kind of shudder. We'll stop wearing those. We'll stop needing proof of vaccination when the numbers indicate that it's OK, not when some politician says you can't set an arbitrary date and say, oh, by January, you won't have to use that again. We don't know that. If there's another spike, then all bets are off and we don't want to go there. So don't listen to what the politicians are saying. What this, the the next step here about maybe not needing proof of vaccination to get into a restaurant or a ball game, we're nowhere near there yet. And we'll be there when the doctors say, yeah, you know what, the numbers are down, we're okay now, and we're not there. You can't arbitrarily set a date. That, that may be a political decision, but I think if we've learned one thing over the last almost two years now that we've been battling this thing, is the decisions should be made by medical experts, not politicians. And, and you know, that's up to us. And again, to, to Dr. Richardson's point, to the Medical Officer of Health here in Hamilton, it's right back on us. You want to see those numbers go? You want to see that situation where we don't need to show proof of vaccination, where we don't have to social distance? Then do it now so the numbers go down. You, you Remember what happened last winter? We, we thought we were out of the woods. We had a great summer. Forget. Remember that in summer 2020? Hey, I think we beat this thing. And it just hit us right between the eyes, and we ended up with a lockdown around Christmas time. We don't want to go there again. So it's, it's up to you, it's up to me, it's up to everybody to follow the protocols, wear the masks, do the social distancing, and still the hand washing. I mean, you know, this is all a matter of public health. And get vaccinated. All right, stop believing some of the crap that you see on social media. Get vaccinated. People with years and years and generations of medical expertise and research have developed these vaccines and they're supporting these vaccines. 
If you want to get your medical advice from some guy that started a podcast a month or so ago, you do that at your own peril. So let's let's listen to the expertise here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I was talking with uh, Dr. Moore, uh, Dr. Kira Moore, of course, the chief medical officer here in Ontario, just before the break, saying that, look, there's going to be spikes. It's colder weather. It's winter. We know that from last winter that we're going to see an increase in this. How bad it is is going to determine just what kind of actions governments are going to take. And we tend to look to other jurisdictions are a little bit ahead of us with the development of the virus to say what's going on. And in Europe right now, a rather troubling story, especially in Austria, a national walk lockdown has gone into effect in Austria for unvaccinated people. Charles de la Desma has some details. Officials have signaled further measures may follow amid soaring infection rates. The move prohibits people 12 and over who haven't been vaccinated or recently recovered from leaving their homes, except for basic activities such as working, grocery shopping and going for a walk or getting vaccinated. The lockdown, which is being imposed until November 24, is believed to affect about 2 million people in the Alpine country of 8.9 million. Austria's leader, has described the country's vaccination rate as shamefully low. I'm Charles Duladesma. So what's going on there? Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Sam Fazelli. Sam is the Director of Research with Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Sam, first of all, thanks for the time. Pleased to have you with us again today. Thank you for having me again, Bill. Pleasure. Uh, look, I know you, you, you split your time between France and, and the UK. Are you, uh, are you on the continent right now? I am in the UK right now, actually. I'm, oh, okay. Uh, I've been here right. a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's safe enough away from Austria, I guess. What's going on there, Sam? I mean, 65% vaccination rate. It's no wonder the government's getting a little nervous. Yeah, so I've been looking at um, the, the rates. I mean, the 65% is, is not a particularly high number. I mean, if you think about it, Bill, folks used to talk about 65, 70 or so uh, vaccination level to be the um, word that nobody, a phrase that nobody uses anymore, herd immunity mm-hmm. for when we knew what the, um, uh, the the infection rate was for the ancestral vaccine. And of course, then came alpha, which changed that. And then came delta, which changed that yet again. So I think if you want to have vaccination really massively reduce your risk of infections, remember, we're talking about cases here, not yeah. hospitalizations, not death. Um, then you need to be with the Delta variant probably at much higher levels than 65%. I don't think 65% cuts it. Yeah, uh, well, here in North America, they they bumped it up to about 90% right now, which is uh, quite a, a change, obviously. But I guess that's, as you say, because of the new cases and the Delta variant, and, and that's a game changer, as you've talked to us about in, in previous discussions. Uh, what What's the uptake like in the rest of, of Europe right now, and, uh, vis-a-vis uh, the percentage of vaccinations and whether or not they feel they've got that under control? I know there's some problem in the UK about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, has the concern there uh, started to, to, to level off? Yeah, the UK's issue is is a lot more to do with the teenagers, adolescent uh-huh. um, age group, and also people going for their third shot. Because, you know, we, we're about 6 million or, or 4 million, I can't remember exactly what the number is, short in terms of the number of third shots that should have happened by now. So we're at about 13 million, and we could have had about 17 or 18 million people who were eligible for that third shot. So that's a slightly different situation. Uh, in the UK. But when you look at the numbers across Europe, you know, I've got the Bloomberg vaccine tracker here, which I which I always refer to. Yeah. You've got countries like Portugal that are at the very top end of that. And then, of course, they have the lowest number of case counts. And they're at 86.5%. Then beyond that, you have Spain at 80%. 
Now, let's not forget also that these are areas where the temperature change is not as, as extreme yet, and people are probably are still able to enjoy outdoor gatherings. But when, when you look at correlations for what is best correlated with the risk of infections, population density uh, is the most correlated uh, number that I could find. And then, of course, you layer on top of that a temperature change as it gets colder and people go more inside, then you start compounding. And that's, I think, what we're dealing with. What about the, the ramifications of this? Quite aside from the medical aspect, I understand that I'm sure the government in Austria made this decision uh, based on the medical expertise that said, look, things are going to get out of control if we don't do this. But as you and I have talked about in the past, Sam, there's an us versus them uh, attitude that starts to develop when when it's the, hey, those unvaccinated people, they're the ones that are causing all this angst here in this country. And, and there's a lot of pushback on that. And then there are, of course, some within the unvaccinated who are strong anti-vaxxers uh, who are just as militant about this it, it creates a very untenable situation in the general population when this sort of thing happens doesn't it it does I'm, I'm i'm surprised with the way that they've gone about this in terms of the lockdown just for the unvaccinated and to be honest with you i don't know how you police it apart from stopping people in the street and looking at their pa- uh, passport uh, vaccine or health pass or whatever it is so uh, you know i prefer much more the way that Fr- the france has been doing it which is you know, you, you're, you're free not to take the vaccine, but these immunities are not available to you if you're not vaccinated, which is fine because you have other rules that stop you from going around the city naked, for example. And you, you're, 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 you're perfectly fine to do that in your own space, but not in public spaces. So, you know, I use a, a, a silly comparison, perhaps, but I think doing it that way, where you're not telling people that we are obliging you to do something, but if you want to do X number of things, take part in aspects of society which which their your your choices impact other people's outcomes and 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 risks then we do expect you to to have them i think that's worked relatively well i mean there have been even those protests have gone and vaccination rates have gone up there are people i know in france who've chosen not to be vaccinated and they don't go to restaurants so but so i am surprised at the uh, austrian approach well, especially because, as you mentioned, it seems somewhat heavy-handed. I guess uh, unvaccinated people that are, are seen to be not following the rules here uh, can be fined up to 1,400 euros, which is a little over $2,000 Canadian. Uh, that's pretty significant. That's a, that's a big number. I mean, I certainly don't want to be at the receiving end of that. But we had that in the UK. When I traveled to the UK under the old regime where you required a, a 10-day quarantine, I had somebody turning up at my door to check whether I was um, in the house or not. And if they couldn't find me and they found out that was, I was outdoors, they could have fined me. And it was a much larger number. I can't remember what number it was. I never paid it because I was here. But, um, but the other thing is, though, uh, Bill, I don't think we should forget. When you have a 65% vaccination level, and we know that vaccinated people can get infected, even though their risk of severe disease is much lower, and they can, at least for some time, transmit it, and you allow the virus to keep passing, then actually the vaccinated are a risk to a degree. I don't want to make that a, a game for the anti-vaxxers to use. But, the, you know, you, 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 you still have a significant risk for that 45%, 35% of the population that are not vaccinated. So, and unfortunately, their choices, because of their much higher risk of, vac- of hospitalization, etc., and ICU coverage, affect a lot of other people and not just their decision not to get vaccinated. One of the purposes uh, i'm not sure how effective it is i want to get your read on this uh when these sorts of impositions are put in uh let's face it although the officials may not want to necessarily uh, recognize it sam is they they hope that people are going to say all right then i guess i'll get the damn vaccination 
Do you see and, and, and anticipate in Austria, as it did in France, that you will see a bump in the number of people that said, okay, I'm going to roll up my sleeve now? Because when President Macron had talked about this some months ago, there was an initial uh, bump to say, okay, yeah, okay, we're going to get vaccinated. Those, those that were sitting on the fence got off the fence. Will that happen in Austria, do you think? So I'm looking at the, again, the Bloomberg vaccine tracker, and I'm looking at Austria, and I have to say I do see an acceleration in the number of uh, vaccine doses being delivered in the past, I would say, few days. If you just look at it from November 9th onwards, uh, and even you see a little uptick pretty much um, starting, as I said, about early November. So maybe you, maybe that's because of that, or maybe people are just naturally starting to worry. The winter's here, lots of cases. I don't want to catch this virus, so I'm going to get vaccinated. Or at least even if I catch it, I'll be safer. Sam, well, I got you, and you just mentioned you're in the UK today. Uh, what's the status there? I know there was some concern a few weeks ago because they, they dropped a lot of the restrictions, masking, as a matter of fact, and, and a couple of the others. And uh, and I know there was a lot of concern about the spike that occurred after that. Uh, have things leveled off? Or are, are, are people getting a little nervous about what's going on as they head into the chillier months in the UK too? Uh, yeah, of course they are. I mean, we have another pickup here. But, but Bill, I'm also part of the statistic now. I had uh, Last time I was here, three weeks ago, I, I caught the virus. And I had a uh, pretty mild disease. Um, it was a, like a bad cold. Um, and now I've recovered, except for my sense of smell, unfortunately. So, it, you know, and I had had two doses of, of the vaccine. It was the AstraZeneca vaccine, four and a half months later. But I, you know, I didn't go and occupy a hospital bed because I was vaccinated. All the people around me in the same event who caught the virus, which was a, we were all double vaxxed, etc. None of them ended up in hospital. None of them had any need for occupying um, precious uh, and taking up precious resources like that. So, and that is the issue that we're going to have to deal with now. If we do see, I was on the uh, subway yesterday and there was 50% or less of people who were, max, uh, who were masked. So, mm. I don't understand why we can't get that over that line with the mass. We've talked about this over and over again, um, and it's still not a mandate here. Amazing. Just amazing. Sam, our time is tight. I thank you for jumping in today. I hope you get well soon. Uh, it's, oh, I'm fine. It's always, thank you. Well, I, I know. Well, we, you need that sense of smell back, too. Uh, so hopefully it'll be a full recovery on this. So we'll check in again in just a little while. Stay well, my friend, and, uh, and thanks again for the time today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. Sam Fazelli, who is the director of research with Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, as I mentioned, in the UK right now, but he often travels between there and the continent uh, to bring us up to speed on what's happening in some of those other countries as well, including Austria. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. We've been talking about the uh, the Aaron O'Toole concerns in Ottawa the last couple of days, the leader of the Conservative Party, and the move afoot that's uh, going on right now to try to get him removed, especially the latest one, uh, which was initiated, we're told, by uh, one of the senators, uh, Senator Batters, uh, with the petition. Well, uh, O'Toole has removed her from the caucus. Uh, Jenny Byrne, who is the former chief of staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper, you may remember that name, uh, was with uh, Alex Pearson on on point, on, uh, of course, on Global News. Uh, and uh, Byrne says that, well, booting batters from the caucus was a mistake. Aaron kicking Denise out is a complete lack of leadership in terms of how to deal with caucus. And so they think they have a win, but they actually don't. And kicking Denise out, someone who has been a stalwart for the party for years, like decades, is absolutely a mistake. So what are the implications of this? Well, I want to uh, bring our next guest into this. Alex Boutillier is uh, with National Politics Reporter, of course, at Global News, who's been covering the story for the last little while. Alex, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for jumping in today. Hey, great to be here. Were you surprised by the move by O'Toole to boot batters out? 
I was surprised at how quickly it came. Um, obviously, if you've got you know a prominent member of your caucus, uh, you know, effectively calling you liberal light and accusing you of betraying conservative principles, you know, that's a bit of an untenable situation, uh, you know, either for the leader or or for uh, the caucus. So I'm not surprised that that Aaron O'Toole and his team moved against Senator Batters after after she made those comments on Monday. I am surprised at how quickly it came, and you know, I'll be very interested to see what sort of fallout sort of leaks out from what should be a very interesting caucus meeting today in Ottawa where, you know, the Conservatives are trying to sort of, uh, you know, ostensibly get ready for the, the House of Commons coming back next week. But I think in reality, they're going to be focused quite a bit on on this internal unrest that we've seen over the last days and, and, and weeks and months since the, uh, since the disappointing uh, election results in September. Uh, somebody like you who's been covering uh, the, the federal scene for so long, I th- you'd love to be a fly on the wall in that office, in that room, wouldn't you? Well, you know, I'm not really one who likes conflict, so <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> the story would be very good. I think there, there might be a few cringeworthy moments. Um, uh, but, but certainly, um, look, you know, the, the Conservatives can't keep going ahead the way that they're going, you know, focused on internal division, focused on fighting amongst e- each other. If they're going to be relevant to Canadians, um, you know, in, in the sitting of the, the House of Commons, look, you know, for those of us who aren't, you know, paid to pay attention to politics, you know, Canadians just went through an election um, begrudgingly, it seems. They returned a very similar parliament. Um, you know, I don't think anybody, you know, at the tail end of a global pandemic really has a huge uh, amount of appetite for, you know, uh, internal party politics being the primary concern for the Conservatives. So, you know, I think I think Aaron O'Toole certainly is anxious to to move forward and and sort of turn his guns back on the Liberals. It'll be interesting to see um, if Senator Batters and her compatriots, because we reported that you know this is not just Senator Batters. This is this yeah. is a, you know a, a group that is organizing against O'Toole. It'll be interesting to see if they quiet down now and play the long game, or if they they sort of uh, stick to their public uh, public relations sort of plan. As you've been reporting on this, I mean, uh, Senator Batters did respond on Twitter saying, Aaron O'Toole tried to silence me for giving our CPC members a voice. I will not be silenced by a leader so weak that he fired me via voicemail. Most importantly, he can't suppress the will of our Conservative Party members. Interesting, if we do some number crunching here, though, Alex, uh, the speculation here is O'Toole says that uh, that he has roughly 70 of his MPs in caucus that are supportive of him. I don't know. He's not naming names. Uh, but if you do a simple count here, that means there's at least 48 that aren't. Uh, there are just there's still dissension in the ranks whether Butters is in that room or not, isn't there? Yeah, and I, I think you know if if Aaron O'Toole's team can only be assured that they have you know the vote of seventy roughly seventy caucus members out of one hundred and eighteen, um, I'm not sure that that's uh, you know the kind of sign of strength that they they were playing it up to be last night. Um, you know that's they're saying that they have seventy MPs who are committed to expelling um, you know their caucus colleagues if they're insufficiently supportive of Aaron O'Toole. Um, you know, some people, some MPs that I talked to last night, um, who are very much in the anti-O'Toole faction, um, said that they don't believe that to be true. Um, it's very difficult to, to, to tell, right? Because you've got, uh, you know, you're now in a situation where you've got Aaron O'Toole and his team and his MPs that support him leaking one version of events, and you've got the anti-O'Toole faction leaking another uh, version of events. So it's very hard to parse and know, you know, with any kind of confidence what's actually going on. Um, but I'd be very surprised to see those anti-O'Toole folks um, go away anytime soon. I think that they have a long-term plan, a, you know, a six-month plan to to try and get this guy out of the leadership. And, you know, we'll see if they're ultimately successful. It's not a great situation. 
One of the other comments Jenny Byrne made to Alex Pearson last night on, on Point on Global was uh, uh, one of the reasons O'Toole, she said anyway, doesn't want the review is because he wouldn't, he wouldn't pass it. Uh, it sounds a little bit subjective there, but I mean, when you look at these numbers right now, uh, I, I can understand there'd be some angst here, but uh, I guess he wants to hope that what he did is going to just let this thing go away and it's going to subside after a little while. But uh, it, it sounds as if this is a pretty concerted effort. I, I, we don't know, I guess, at this stage, uh, based on your reporting, as to whether these other ones who are behind the scenes right now are going to show themselves and say, we are the people that are opposed to this. I mean, that, that, that would take this to a next level, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think you're right. And the other thing about the um, the question of whether or not he would, you know, survive a leadership review or not, keep in mind, you know, I used to cover the NDP and we went through this with, with Thomas Mulcair after the 2015 election, mm-hmm. where, you know, he was facing a leadership review quite soon afterwards. And I remember six months of questions, you know, the question over and over again is, you know, what level of support do you need to stay on? Because, you know, if you get 50 plus 1 percent support in a leadership review, that means you step down anyway. That means that you're leading a divided party. And that was the situation that Mulcair found himself in going further back. Of course, you know, we have, you know, conservative examples with Joe Clark, uh, who I believe got 68 percent and still stepped down. Um, So, you know, it's not a great situation for a leader to be in to be staring down one of these reviews because, of course, you know, all people like me will ask him is about that rather than about inflation or, you know, uh, economic recovery or any of the things that, that he would much prefer to talk about. So it, it's, not, it's not just like he can, you know, declare he's going to face a leadership review um, tomorrow, get 50 plus one and carry on. Um, it's a much more, you know, dangerous play than that. Well, we saw that yesterday, didn't we? I mean, when O'Toole issued the statement about, uh, uh, you know, jettisoning uh, batteries, I mean, he, you know, he said, you know, we'd rather focus on, on the corrupt liberal government. And people said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about the, uh, the, 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 the media right now are lazy focused on this? It's not going to go away just because O'Toole wants it to. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the other thing is, again, I, I, I bring up that we just been through a federal election. I don't think anybody except political nerds are really, you know, they don't want to be focused on this. They're concerned about the grocery bill, they're concerned about, you know, the price at the pumps. Um, and, you know, I think the Conservatives have been in the past very good at meeting voters where they're at in terms of those pocketbook issues, but they can't do that until they move beyond this. And, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to tell right now, you know, what O'Toole has to do to actually move beyond it and, and sort of have a mandate to leave. Well, we'll be uh, watching for your reporting on this. As you mentioned, the caucus meeting going on, and uh, we'll see what kind of feedback we're going to get. Alex, a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks so much. Hey, anytime. Pleasure to be here. Take care. Alex Boutillier, of course, national politics reporter, uh, Global News, and he's uh, right now in the nation's capital. We're waiting to see what the uh, Tory caucus is going to do uh, with Aaron O'Toole today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring you up to speed on what's going on in British Columbia right now. An update on the city of uh, Abbotsford, where, as you've been hearing over the last couple of days, floodwaters have forced people from their homes in the uh, Sumas Prairie. Global's Aaron Hubels has reports. The flooding in the city primarily coming from the Nooksack River in Washington State, which spilled its banks on Monday. Abbotsford Fire Chief Darren Lee says the river is now back in its channel, causing some relief in the Huntington area. And also um, starting to see a bit of relief in the west side of the Sumas Prairie in, in terms of water levels starting to drain which is a a positive sign for us, but we're certainly not out of uh, trouble here yet. He adds water is making its way to the Fraser River, causing concerns east of the Sumas River. He says there were also technical issues at a pumping station, which drains water out of that area, but says that things have since resolved. Aaron Ubell's Global News. 
So what is happening and why is this happening? That's a question a lot of us are asking as we watch with horror to see what's going on uh, out of the West Coast right now. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Kent Moore. Uh, Mr. Moore is the Vice Principal of Research and a Professor of Atmospheric Physics at the University of Toronto. Professor, pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Bill. We're hearing phrases here that a lot of us may not be familiar with, Professor, right off the bat. The one that uh, most often comes to mind here is atmospheric river uh, and, and the implications of that. Maybe you could explain to our listeners exactly what that is. Sure. So um, an atmospheric river, it's, it's a very well kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a really nice phrase. So what, what one sees in the atmosphere quite often is really, really long kind of ribbons of uh, water vapor uh, that, that can extend... Uh, thousands of kilometers are usually associated with large uh, synoptic, large-scale weather systems, like the kind of lows that can impact our weather in the winter. And in the case of uh, BC, uh, one often gets really deep, low-pressure systems over the Gulf of Alaska. And those pressure systems can bring water, essentially, all the way from Hawaii up into um, the west coast of uh, North America. They're called, sometimes they're called Pineapple Express. They affect the whole west coast so like from california right up into alaska these uh, these 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 rivers can impact the, the region and they carry a huge amount of water like one of these rivers can carry as much water water vapor not water but water vapor as the amazon river so there's huge rivers of water really in the sky and then of course what happens is that when they hit the west coast of uh, north america it's cold and also mountainous and a lot of that water then precipitates out as rainfall so this is not a new phenomenon. This happens uh, on a regular basis, then. Yep, yep. These things have been around, you know, for as long as the weather's been on the earth. Uh, you know, uh, and you know, every 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 winter or every fall and winter, the BC, BC would get maybe four or five of these uh, atmospheric rivers hitting them, and you know, the rainfall can be quite intense. What we're seeing, of course, uh, you know, now is that as the Earth warms up, uh, the, the atmosphere can hold more water vapor. Okay, and so what that means is that these rivers, you know, as in a lot of phenomenon in the climate system, they're becoming more intense than they were before. And I think that's probably the reason, uh, you know, behind the really extreme kind of rainfall events that we've seen in uh, BC. It's just this intensification of these atmospheric rivers as a consequence of climate change. I know that, you know, we, we may be splitting hairs in situations like this because I know some people are saying, aha, this was totally closed by, caused by, by global warming. And, and, I, and there's a lot of validity, I think, to, to, to that line of thinking. Uh, but as, as a, a few meteorologists I've seen, uh, their comments over the last couple of days, professors seem to indicate, that, well, for instance, to your point, I mean, you know, global warming did not cause atmospheric rivers, but it's created a scenario right now for them to be, in this particular case, to be much more severe. That's true. And so, again, you know, when we talk about extreme events, we also be careful because climate is, by definition, kind of averages, right? And, 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 and extreme events always happen. You know, we've always had heat waves. We've always had, you know, extreme rainfall events. And then, so it's always a challenge to sort of characterize, you know, or attribute an event to climate change. Because, again, we have to talk about averages. So if you look at, you know, uh, and, and I've undertaken research with an ice core from Mount Logan in uh, northern Canada that, that, that's shown that the intensity of kind of rainfall events on the West Coast has been increasing, you know, for about 150 years. 
you know, since 1850 or so. And, and, and so it's been increasing, uh, but we're always going to have sort of events on top of that where, you know, the event will be really, really large, or we could have times when there's no atmospheric rivers. And, and so, you know, the, the problem is there's lots of variability in the climate system. Uh, but what we're seeing more and more is that, you know, that these extreme events are popping above the range of natural variability. So, you know, we might expect to say with four or five atmospheric rivers every fall or winter in, 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 in BC, we may be getting the same number or maybe a few more, but the intensity of them is getting larger than what we've expected in the past. And that's really where the stress comes because people have designed infrastructure, you know, for, you know, a given climate and a given range of, of, uh, of variability. And then when you get these extreme events that, that surpass, you know, what the engineered limits are, that's when you start to have problems like, you know, that uh, water, you know, processing plant, you know, uh, being flooded or, you know, the Coca-Holly River getting kind of swept away because, again, we're, we're going outside the range at which our infrastructure has been designed for. That, that's a human failing that's been going on for a long, long time, though, isn't it, Professor? I, I, I know, for instance, you know, in Southern California, the after the, the horrific earthquake in San Francisco back in the, in the early 20th century, uh, they said, you know what, building tall buildings on the San Andreas Fault, probably not a good idea. Uh, so for the longest time, they didn't, but they kind of got away from it because they said, oh, we're better at engineering these sorts of things right now. Uh, and we, we tend, after a while, I guess, to kind of not get smug, but kind of take for granted that we can we can coerce, you know, we can handle Mother Nature, whatever they throw at us, uh, because of our engineering expertise, et cetera. Uh, and, and I guess this is a stark reminder that no, we can't. Uh, when it decides to, to, to rear its ugly head, it, it, it's going to consume us. Exactly right. I think we are, you know, we are tend to be a bit short-sighted and, you know, we forget that we had a really, really, you know, bad winter a few years ago. And so, you know, we're never going to have bad winters again. Whatever. So, yeah, I mean, it is that case and we do get a bit short-sighted. And, um, you know, it, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a problem if, kind of the climate was stable, right? Because, in, I mean, I have a great respect for engineers and they know how to design, mm -hmm. you know, buildings, you know, to, to meet whatever the expected, you know, range of environmental parameters are. It's when you get outside that, that really becomes a problem. And, and it's a, and I, so it's a really, I think it, we're a bit short-sighted. I think we do feel that, that we can control mother nature. And I think, uh, you know, one thing that I've learned in my career is that mother nature is incredibly powerful. I mean, the amount of energy you know, in a thunderstorm is, is just enormous. Or the, think, of a, think of this river that had as much water in it as the Amazon River. These things are huge, and, and we're really quite small. And although we're pretty good at, at engineering, uh, you know, I think we sometimes uh, think we're actually probably better than, than, than we are. And when that happens, Mother Nature's there to kind of give us a reminder as to who's really in control, right? It's not us. It's, it's really the climate system. Yeah, and I, I share your, your, your admiration for engineers. I mean, they've done some incredible things, and we'll continue to do incredible things. But there are some, I guess, some basic tenets, and and we don't see this. I mean, you know, we've had flooding here in southern Ontario, as you as you well know, Professor, over the years. I mean, there's some horrific flooding in the Ottawa River and the Ottawa Valley a couple of years ago. Uh, that flooded out uh, I, I, family and friends that were impacted by this. And of course, we've seen it in other parts of southern Ontario and up around Bracebridge that same year we had that. 
but then there's some things I guess that we really would take as common sense, like you know we're building on floodplains and and figure no we can do that. We well, not if the floodplain gets flooded, you can't do that. And you know we we that's what I'm saying when I think we get a little bit uh, complacent sometimes and say no we can handle this. Uh, you know that it's a floodplain for a reason. You know, and and I guess I'm not suggesting that you know we're being irresponsible, but we have to be cognizant of the fact. Uh, that these things are going to happen. And you don't anticipate they're going to happen every year, but we have to remember that they can happen and now see the devastation that occurs because of that. Well, that's true. And, and the issue with, flood, with floodplains, so again, it's a floodplain is like a statistical interpretation of where, you know, the high water mark is. Yeah. And the problem is, is that, you know, we're changing the climate. And so that high water mark may be different than it was when the floodplain was mapped out. So, so again, you know, you know, so changing climate, I, I think, you know, often I think we focused a lot on kind of temperatures, right? And, you know, climate is more than temperatures. And that's why we tend to use the word climate change rather than global warming, because we're not only seeing changes in temperature, but changes in precipitation, you know, also droughts and other things as, as well. And so I think, you know, we're kind of moving the goalposts, right? And this is a real problem is the goalposts are moving and they're moving at a rapidity that out ways our ability to to manage that right and, and so you know and that's the problem with with uh with floodplains is that it, you know a floodplain 30 40 years ago is a lot different than a floodplain today and and a lot of it has to do with not only changes to the climate but changes to the land surface so you know in urban areas you know we get a lot more flooding in the in the summertime because we've paved you know we've paved over all the vegetation right and that water comes down Rather than so, you know soaking in, into the ground and slowly being released to the rivers, it's now running off right away. And so you know in urban areas we have this big problem. I think some of the problems in BC were exacerbated, you know, by for instance last summer because you know the wildfires would have stripped vegetation off of some steep you know steep slopes, and then of course when the rains come in the fall, there's no vegetation to hold that water back, and it just floods right off and produces mudslides. So so I, I think there's lots of kind of changes that are happening. And, and unfortunately, I think we're seeing in BC almost like a feedback process, right? So the, the extreme heat in the summer is leading to reduced vegetation and wildfires are also reducing vegetation. And then when the when the rains come in the fall, you know, we get more mudslides and things. So, you know, it is a kind of like a like a like a feedback loop, which is amplifying, frankly, some of these consequences. And so, you know, I, I think we have to understand that this is the new normal. And of course, the thing to remember is that we're mapping, we're predicting more warming, right? Whatever mm-hmm. Prop 26 actually comes up with, we're going to see more warming than we are seeing today, right? So in the future, we're going to see more intense. I mean, we're going to see more intense events, right? Not only the ones we're seeing today, but even more intense. And I think this is the real wake-up call, frankly, that we as a society have to understand is that we've baked in a certain amount of warming and a certain amount of extreme, you know, weather events. And that's the normal for now, but the goalposts are continuing to move because we're continuing to warm the planet up. What's the takeaway here then, Professor? Do we have to take a step back when, when, you know, we talk about what we're doing and what we're developing? Uh, you know, I, I, some of the things, as I said, just don't seem to make sense. I mean, you know, we've had, well, you, you can see it from probably your location of the, of the U of T. 
uh, you know, flooding in the Don Valley. I mean, you know, sometimes the, the parkway has been totally flooded over a couple of times in the summer months uh, because of excessive rainfall and the, and the flooding that occurs. And I mean, common sense says, well, it's, it's the valley. It's where the Don River is. Of course, it's going to flood if there's a lot of river. But we've built roads there. We've built all sorts of other things. And you've you've seen the stories out in British Columbia right now. There are people that have been stranded on some of those highways for a couple of nights now because uh, they can't get out. Uh, they're stuck in the middle of the road someplace and just hoping the water levels don't rise in situations like that. Uh, do we have to reevaluate what we're building and where we're building? I think for sure, because obviously the infrastructure that we have isn't sustainable, right? So I think we have to, you know, seriously think about how we're going to, uh, you know, rebuild this infrastructure way, which is which can support these events. And of course, that's a bandaid, right? Because the real problem is that we're we're warming yep. the climate, and so I think the the real solution, frankly, is you know getting our carbon emissions under control. But that's a real challenge. And I think we have to sort of, you know, do a two-pronged approach and understand that, you know, we are in a new climate regime and our infrastructure isn't built for that. And so we've got to reinvest in our infrastructure. And we also have to, frankly, solve, you know, keep working on the fundamental problem, which is our continued emission of, uh, you know, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. That's the thing which is ultimately causing all of these problems. And, uh, you know, uh, so we have to do both. I think we have to kind of, rethink our infrastructure maybe some places have to be abandoned right maybe we can't support people who live in areas that are going to flood out every you know couple of years just because it's such a huge cost to, to themselves and and to society those are really really difficult decisions that may have to be made uh, and i think we have to have those sorts of di- sorts of discussions and then just bulletproof our existing infrastructure so they can manage these, uh, you know, these new extremes that we're seeing. I'm thinking back to to the Al Gore movie, and as you recall, in, an inconvenient truth some years ago. And a lot of the critics looked at that and said, "Come on, you're overstating it here, Mr. Gore." You know, New York City flooding uh, and all this sort of stuff because of sea level. That's come on, that's that, that's not going to happen. And and look around, what's going on here? I mean, well, even Hurricane Sandy a couple of years ago, where New York did flood. Uh, but now you've got it in British Columbia, and, and maybe it's not happening to the extent that that movie indicated, but it's starting to creep up on us. And it, it, I think, you know, we would ignore that at our peril, wouldn't we? Yeah, that's really the sad the sad part of all this is that, you know, Al Gore's, you know, movie was, I think, you know, he was, you know, he was really, you know, sounding the siren. And, you know, frankly, you know, scientists had understood, you know, Suki Manabe, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics this year, published a paper in 1967, which essentially, you know, predicted what the impact of doubling CO2 would be on the atmosphere. So we've known, you know, we've known what the issue is for a long time. And we've continued to kind of punt it down the, down the, you know, down the field or whatever. And, you know, I think, you know, now is the time that we really have to understand that, yeah, we're going to see these kinds of events in the future and we have to, to, to deal with it. And I think it's kind of like a band-aid. Like, you know, we can, sure, we're going to help these people out because they're trapped on the, you know, highway or whatever. But that's like almost like a band-aid response. We got to get at the fundamental underlying problem as, as, as well and deal with these, these events as they, as they come. And frankly, the cost, you know, the thing that I think some people are worried about is what's the cost of controlling our emissions of carbon? It's huge. But how much did this event cost in terms of human, you know, experience or, or you know infrastructure it was it's it's enormous right and mm-hmm. i think these things add up over time and you know economists have shown that you know the cost of not dealing with climate change 
is actually higher than the cost of dealing with it. I'm talking about dealing with our carbon emissions, not dealing exactly. with the kind of the extreme events. So we either pay now or we pay later. And, you know, if you don't want to deal with the climate, you know, if you don't think that the climate is really that important, then it's going to hit our pocketbook as well. So I think we have it to has. understand that we pay now or we, or, we, or we pay later. Exactly. On that note, uh, we got to finish off. We're just uh, pretty tight on time. Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much for your, for having me on. Bye now. Take care. Professor Kent Moore from the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.